0: Welcome to Creators by Moonlight. Real conversations with content creators. Vic Ferrari is a retired New York City police officer and detective. After 20 years on the force, he became an author and has written books that capture both the lighter and darker sides of life in America's biggest city. In this episode, he talks about his career with the NYPD, his process for storytelling, and the courage to promote your own voice.
1: My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired 20 year member of the New York City Police Department. Born and raised in the Bronx, New York, lower middle class family. I always wanted to become a police officer since I was about five years old. I like to tell the story as a kid. My friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall and then go around the neighborhood doing manhunts. Who were we were going to find and what we were going to get ourselves in tr- We were going to get ourselves in a lot of trouble. By 20, I took the police exam. 21, I got hired. I had a wonderful 20 year career with the NYPD. I worked in a lot of units. 15 out of my 20 years was in plain clothes. I worked in anti crime units, which target robberies, burglaries, pickpocketing. I got stuck working in a DUI unit, which I absolutely hated. I worked in Manhattan North Narcotics Division doing buy and bust operations, search warrants. And then my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So. Anything with stolen vehicles, chop shops, exporting stolen cars out of the country, changing VIN numbers on stolen cars for resale, anything to do with the mafia that involved cars. Sometimes that would lead to homicides. After 20 years, it was time to retire. I had a great career, but enough was enough. And uh, moved down to sunny Florida. I got into writing. I've written six books, four of which are behind-the-scenes books about the New York City Police Department. The NYPD is one of those places where you could be whatever you want to be. So if you became a police officer and you said, you know what, I want to manage people. I want to be a supervisor. Well, if you kept your nose clean and took the civil service exam, you could move up the ranks to sergeant, lieutenant, captain and above. If like me, I was a car guy. I wasn't a car thief, but in my neighborhood, stealing a car for a lot of people was a rite of passage. So I knew so much about stolen cars and the stolen car industries. Like, I knew what I wanted to do as soon as I got into the NYPD. just took me 10 years to get People take that job for different reasons. Like, in the NYPD, they'll deny it. There are summons quotas. You have to write summonses when you're in uniform. And you could be doing God's work. You could make 20 arrests a month, deliver three babies, and capture Osama bin Laden when he was out. And if you didn't write your parking and moving violations, you're going to get a subpar evaluation. So we were forced to write tickets, but there were guys, the hall monitor type, the summons guys, those were kind of the guys that got bullied in life, either bullied or didn't date a good, you know, girls, or, you know, they were socially awkward. So for them, the power was in the pen. Those were the ones that didn't give any a break, like, sorry, ma, the law is the law. They were kind of pariahs, but every NYPD precinct's got a couple of them. And, you know, no matter how much you talk to these guys, they really just don't see the light. For me, I loved action. Probably, if I didn't gravitate to law enforcement, there's probably a pretty decent chance I might have gotten myself into trouble. I love the excitement. I love getting into foot chases. I like getting into car chases. So for me, it was the action. And, you know, it's funny. When I retired, it's like everything just stops. You know, the world goes on without you. And I'm like, that's why I got into writing. Because I I was like, what the hell am I going to do now? Like, I was just so bored out of my mind.
0: Vic gives an overview of the changes he witnessed throughout his 20-year career with the NYPD, including the increasing administrative burden.
1: I was active from uh, 1987 to 2007, so right, like smack dead in the, uh, the crack epidemic in the 80s. In the 80s, they didn't want uniformed cops getting involved with street-level drug arrests. If you were in a radio car, you and your partner stopped some kid on the corner pitch and crack or heroin and you brought him into the station house, they'd get upset. You know, they'd say, leave that for narcotics. Great. You locked up this guy with 10 decks of heroin or 20 bottles of crack. Now you just took a car off the road and we're holding 30 jobs, you know, 30 calls. So when Giuliani came in, you know, he was a former federal prosecutor. He knew what needed to be done. And what wound up happening was we were able to bring down crime significantly. Like, I'm, just to give you some statistics, New York was averaging over 2,500 homicides a year in the 80s. We were averaging over 150,000 cars stolen a year in the five. It was, it was like the Wild West. When I got hired, New York was a dump in the Wild West. When I retired, crime was down significantly. I think we were down to like under 500 homicides a month and probably 15 or 20,000 stolen cars a year, which sounds a lot, but when you got 9 million people, that was the good, the bad. There were a lot more restraints put on us as far as I worked in organized crime for 10 out of my 20 years. We kind of got pulled into the statistics. They use this thing called Comstat, the management of the NYP, to to track Crime and hold precinct commanders accountable for crime. Jack Maples, he was a trained lieutenant that people used to laugh at. Like, you know, he was like one of these guys, like a mad scientist, you know, with pin maps. When uh, Giuliani came in, he liked Carrick. He made Carrick the PC and they started listening to guys like Maples. There was a bunch of them, Chief Timony, there was a bunch of them. And it was a great system. It really was. But here's the thing with Comstat it's like chemotherapy. So God forbid you get cancer and you get chemotherapy and your cancer is gone. Great. Now you're in remission, you're cured. You don't keep going for chemotherapy, right? What the NYPD do is they just kept like, you know, riding these precinct commanders like, we want more, we want more statistics. What are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? And it's like, dude, you know, just you're gonna piss off the community with us, you know, constantly buzzing around. They didn't know when to take their foot off the gas, so crime is going down, so the summons are going to go down, arrests are going down, but crime is down. But these supervisors, it's like they're playing Dungeons and Douchebags or fantasy football. They got addicted to the statistics, and they were always on our ass about, well, well, we want more, we want more. It's like, you know we're going to piss off the community, right, if you keep having us go out there hammering people as far as with summonses or inspections. So it it became more of a, a paper pusher department when I left. You know, now the pension was swung back the other way. You have a lot of these. Uh, it starts with the district attorney's office. You got to get them on board to prosecute these cases. If they start DP'ing things, which is declined to prosecute, or they're not holding people, they're knocking felonies down to misdemeanors because a district attorney's job is to prosecute cases, but it's also an elected position, right? So every year when they come up for election, they have to say, look at my conviction rate. Well, the conviction rate, it's a little foggy because a conviction rate also takes into consideration plea bargains. So if a guy takes a plea to something, they count that as a conviction. That's why they make these attractive plea deals so they can have their conviction rate up. So in boroughs like the Bronx and Brooklyn, property crime was ridiculous. If you locked up somebody with a stolen car, they'd want to knock it down from criminal possession of stolen property or grand loss in the auto to unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, which is like an overdue rent to car. So, you know, they were letting car thieves walk and, you know, they just kept piling on these misdemeanors and nobody was going to jail.
0: Vic shares a few of his funnier stories, as well as how a career in the NYPD can affect your personal life.
1: I could tell you funny stories all day long. The one way you're going to get into trouble in the NYPD is if you lose your gun, your shield or your ID card so most cops I mean they hide it in their house you know what I mean God forbid there's a burglar or something so we worked with a guy who wasn't the sharpest of people and uh he lived in a shitty neighborhood he was going out one night he didn't want to take his gun with him so he hid his gun his off-duty revolver in the one place he didn't think anybody would look which was his stove goes out and has a couple of cocktails comes back four hours nine beers later wants to make a snack so he preheats his oven to 425 He goes into the living room, starts channel surfing. There's gunpowder and bullets. The round started going off in the gun. And probably the first one, he was like, holy shit, what the hell was that? Then the second one went off. He had to crawl out of his house on his hands and knees and call 911 on himself. (laughs) And emergency service had to respond and get the gun out of the oven after it blew up. So he lost vacation time. He lost the gun. And oh, by the way, he had to buy a new stove. There's a chapter in my book, NYPD Law and Disorder, called Sickness, Health, and Fat Bastards. The chapter is about cops that try to get out on tax-free disability, or cops that are trying to get out on lawsuits, or the sick program in the NYPD. So we used to work with a guy that was very boisterous. He had a big mouth. He wasn't a bad guy, but he just had a really big mouth. Like, you could walk into a bar, there could be 400 people in there, and you'd know he was there without even seeing him you know, he was a bit of an alcoholic. He used to abuse the NYPD sick program. So you can go sick three times a year and nobody's going to go looking for you. If you go sick more than three times a year, you're not to leave your house when you're out sick. So they'll check on you. And if they come by your house and you're not home, you just lost 30 vacation days and they put you on a year of probation. So this guy lives 70 miles out of the city and he figured, well, no one's going to come looking for me. So he bangs in one day, goes sick starts feeling better later in the day and goes down to his local tavern in Orange County, New York. And he's sitting at the bar having a couple of beers. This guy walks into the bar dressed in business casual. He's carrying a folder and he walks up to the bartender and this guy says, hey, you know where Willow Lane is? And before the bartender can answer, this cop says, hi, I live on Willow Lane. You make two rights, you make a left and it's right there. Who are you looking for? And the guy opens up the folder and he pulls out his ID card folder. He goes, I'm looking for you. <laughs> so he got suspended on the spot. He had two guys from the health service division that went up there to check on this guy. They got lost. They walked into the bar where this guy is hanging out where he's supposed to be homesick. sick. So he got jammed up for that. I enjoyed my job and I never took the work home with me. I never did drugs. So I know, you know, <laughs> alcohol, we used to go out after work every now and then and have a couple of cocktails. Were there people that, that were alcoholics? Yeah, but that's in every job. And, you know, unfortunately, I love my job. I really enjoyed it. It's what I wanted to do. It wasn't like I just took the job because, eh, you know, it's a job and, you know, I'll get a retirement and blah, blah, blah. I really enjoyed it. So I didn't have any problems with that. Did I see it with certain people? Yeah, I did. And I like to tell the story. There's most cops or a lot will go and buy a house in the country. They'll go and buy a house out in Long Island, upstate New York, right? 60, 70 miles away. Cause back then the houses were less expensive. They get more, more money, you know, more property for their money. But what would happen is now you're adding an hour, hour and a half commute each way to work, right? So in addition to working eight hours, you're adding two, three hours sometimes to your commute. And a lot of these cops didn't see their families very often. Sure, they'd see them for an hour or two at night and then maybe on the weekends and then on vacation. But for the most part, the husband or wife that worked in law enforcement was away a lot. I saw a lot of marriages that fell apart when the person in law enforcement retired. Now they're home all the time. And now they're asking questions like, Why don't you go to Price Club instead of Costco? And the wife was like, what, are you kidding me? Kiss my ass. I've been buying the groceries there for the last 20 years. Now you're asking questions like, why do you keep the cereal in this drawer? So you saw that happen where these guys and women were working so much overtime and with the commute and everything, they barely saw their families. And then when they came home, they were like an outsider in their own house. It dawned on me when I started seeing my friends retiring and their marriages falling apart.
0: Vic was a first responder at Ground Zero on 9-11 and shares his experiences from that fateful day and its aftermath.
1: Oh, I was down there walking around by 1, 1.30 in the afternoon. It was um, it's like something out of a, a, a science fiction horror movie. I mean, nobody really knew what to do. It was complete chaos. We were walking around there. Everything was covered in that toxic dust. There were thousands or hundreds or thousands of pairs of women's shoes. All these women that worked in the financial district on Wall Street or in the towers, when they were fleeing, just threw their shoes. So you just saw thousands of pairs of women's shoes in this dust. I mean, like the hot dog trucks, everything was just, it was just like something out of, like you'd see in a movie, like everything was left behind. The closer you got to uh, Ground Zero, The darker it got because of all that toxic dust, the sunlight had difficulty penetrating the particles. You know, it was just, it was wild. We just, I felt like a child when you see something that you just don't quite understand or can comprehend. I was there for the first week, probably doing 12, 14 hour shifts. Then they pulled my unit out for a while. Then we came back, we were doing the bucket brigade, sorting through the debris. And since I worked in auto crime, weeks later when they started bringing in heavy equipment and taking out, you know, large piles of stuff, they had us out at the dump with like Jaws of Life and Crowbars and stuff, opening up these cars that were crushed to make sure no one was trapped in you know, no one had perished in them. Crime was down for a while. You know, it was funny, even the criminals took a break for that first month. You know, we thought crime was going to go through the roof, like, like, well, everybody's down there, so, you know, we're going to have at it. You got to remember, like in New York, in 93, there was a terrorist plot against the world trade center where they put a, uh, I think it was a u-haul truck in the garage and, and set off like a fertilizer bomb like the same thing that timothy mcveigh did in oklahoma and that only just really damaged the world trade center it didn't it didn't knock it down so you know it's like in new york we always knew we were a target you know what i mean for terrorism and then the nypd stepped up with federal money and everything for the longest time they had us in the subways you know just making sure somebody, you know, looking for suspicious people and just to make the commuters feel more safe. I remember doing that for like the first couple of years. But then, I mean, things just went back to normal after a while. I never really had a problem with them, but there was definitely animosity between the NYPD and the FDNY. And this is long before 9-11. It spurned from, uh, this is like the late 80s. It spurned from a contract dispute. And, you know, this is 30 something years ago, but I think all the unions were in lockstep with each other that they were trying to get the city to give them more money or whatever, whatever concessions. And the fire department jumped to the table first and cut a deal. So that sparked some animosity. And, you know, firefighters used to catch a break with certain things, off-duty behavior. And, oh, the hockey game. There's more fights in the stands. The, um, the NYPD, FD, you see, there are more fights in the stands when these, I don't know if they still do. But a couple of times I went, like, in the early 90s, I'm like, Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? Like, like there's fights breaking out in the stands between cops and firemen. It, It cut both ways. I really, I don't get caught up in the drama. I really didn't care. I wasn't a summons guy. Plus, I worked in organized crime my last 10 years, so I really never got into that. But there was, definitely,
0: without a doubt. Vic shares his opinions on what the entertainment industry gets right and wrong about being a big city police officer.
1: I mean, when I was a kid, that's one of the reasons I wanted to become a cop, watching all the police shows, you know, Barney Miller, Beretta, all, all these television and movie shows, and a lot of them were about the New York City Police Department, so that, that's basically what directed me to do it. There's a big difference between perception and reality. The one show that gets it right was Law & Order. Back in the day, I'm talking about when the show first came on, like the first 10 years or so, Because law and order shows there's a crime committed, the detectives show up, they start asking questions, they start interviewing people, they're going back and forth with the district attorney's office, the district attorney's telling them, you can't lock this guy up, let me write you a search warrant, let's get more information. The guy gets locked up, and then they go to the prosecutorial part of the case where the detectives are coming in and testifying, and then they wrap everything up in an hour. That's unrealistic, but that's about as close as it's going to get to reality, all these movies and television shows, yeah, you're right. It is painful for me to watch. And here's the thing. There is a lot of action in law enforcement, but there's consequences. If you do something outrageous or stupid, I mean, you're going to either be out of a job or they're never going to let you leave the station house. Like if you watch like these lethal weapon movies or whatever the latest and greatest, you know, cop television show or movie is, these guys are crashing cars and shooting people and they're going out and having a bar. Like no fucking way. If you start crashing cars, forget it. I mean, they they don't want to hear it. You're not commenting that you're going to go commandeer someone's car. You wreck that car, it's going to come out of your pocket. Well, God forbid you pull some old man out of his car. Hey, I need your car. And the guy drops dead of a heart attack. It's on you. You know, in in the NYPD, we weren't allowed to chase stolen cars. Did we do it? Yeah, all the time. But if you caught the guy and nobody got hurt, no harm, no foul. No one was going to come looking for you. But if you're chasing somebody in a stolen car, and God forbid that guy T-bones some poor civilian going to work they're going to cut your balls off. So there were consequences. You know what I mean? You, you couldn't just do reckless behavior and do ridiculous things. Like, you get involved in a shooting. I mean, forget it. They put you on the shelf. You're investigated for months. And you can go to jail. So it's not like, hey, did you hear I just shot a guy yesterday? It, it doesn't work like that.
0: After 20 years, Vic left the NYPD. He describes his brief coda in Florida law enforcement followed by his turn to writing and the processes he uses to create his books.
1: I never thought about retirement up until, so I retired in 2007, probably around 2004, 2005. It started getting in my, I never thought about retirement. I never took the job for a pension. I never thought I was going to retire. I was having too much fun. I really was. It's a lifestyle. It's like mobsters call like the life. It's kind of the same in law enforcement. Things were changing. You know, I was in the same place for 10 years and the personnel was changing. A lot of my coworkers were retiring or going off to different units. We were getting new people in that didn't necessarily have organized crime backgrounds and they had their way of doing things. And as funny as it sounds, because I was 41 years old, like you said, I was still relatively young. Having a 27 year old sergeant or something, it becomes awkward when you know more than the guy you're working for and he's not listening to you. So, Probably about with a year to go, I said, you know what? I'm going. And you know, I remember my father saying, are you kidding? You're going to leave after 20? Can you do that? I said, yeah, I'm going to. I'm glad I did. I was unsure at the time. You know, It was one of those things, well, I'm going to do it. I just really hope this works out for me. And it did. I retired. I was still living up in the Bronx. I was thinking about buying a house in the Jersey Shore. And then I realized that the great state of New Jersey would take 6% of my pension. And I didn't like New Jersey that much. So I had some friends growing up that were a lot smarter than me that became engineers and they moved down to Florida and they worked for the defense industry. I had been coming down to Florida for years vacationing and I called a couple of them up and I said, listen, you mind if I come down there for a while? I'm gonna look around and see what's what. I bought a house down here, I was bored, I came out of retirement, I um, got my certification, I became a police officer down in Florida and it was like an episode, it was like a bad episode of Reno 911. I went from investigating organized crime in the largest police department in the country to uh, now I'm in a small police department, I'm back on the road, I'm dealing with drunks and domestic violence. And then becoming a cop in Florida, it's like having a stroke and having to learn everything all over again. Like, yeah, I know if this guy hits this guy in the head with a bottle, it's an arrest. But there's different charges, different paperwork. I gotta take them to different places. Like, I did the same thing in New York for 20 years. Here, everything is different. Plus, right, like during training, I remember we spent half a day ha- learning how to wrestle, wrestle alligators. And I'm like, can't we just shoot these fucking things? And like, nope. You, every call has duct tape, and you gotta, you gotta sneak up behind them. And I'm like, get the fuck out! Of here. I'm not doing this. So after about eight months, I re-retired, I was bored out of my mind and uh, friends and family said, you know, you got all these funny stories, you know how to tell a story, why don't you write a book? And I said, I don't know, who the hell is going to want to, you know, who cares what I have to say? But I did it and the first book started selling, the second book started selling, so it's kind of become like a little cottage industry for me. You know, I had never taken a creative writing class, I, I was, you know, journalism, but my lieutenant, I, as a detective, there's these long forms you have to fill out. They're called DD5s, and they really want you to, it's not like a, a simple arrest as a patrol cop. They really, you know, they want details. And I'm very sarcastic in my writing. And I remember my lieutenant always laughing and handing me back a five and going, yeah, I think this is funny. They're not going to think this funny if somebody reads this downtown, you know, kind of take out some of these adjectives. So I knew I could write, and you're right about ruffling feathers because, you know, listen, I'm not a sour grapes kind of guy all my friends worked for the NYPD, a lot of them, right? So I said, if I'm going to write these books, I don't want to get anybody in trouble or divorced. So with my books, I mean, these events happened, but I changed the names, the dates, the ranks, the locations, sometimes the sexes. And I mean, I, I don't shine a light on somebody because I, I don't, I I don't want to get sued and B, I, I don't want to embarrass anybody. All my books are, are chapters with short stories. So I'll pick a a police, in one of my books, there's a chapter called Crossing Over the Dark Side, and that's about NYPD cops I knew that went bad or went to jail or got fired. Or another one of my books is a chapter, Practical Jokers, and that's loaded with practical joke stories. There's stories in my books uh, about criminal investigations and cases, but my books are easy reading. You could just pick them up, go to a chapter, and boom, there's three or four either humorous or dark stories in there from my NYPD career. I refuse to write in chronological order because I I started doing that and I was getting nowhere. So what I do with my books, I just pick a story that I know is going to be funny and it works, and I start working on it. And when I get writer's block or I think I take it as far as I can, I move on to the next story. I'll come back to it. It was difficult. Putting the book together was difficult because there's a lot of scam artists out there. I got burned by my first editor, actually my second editor. Now I know the process. I mean, as far as putting a book together, getting the cover done, getting a good copy edit, getting a good proofread, having the book formatted. So when you upload it into the Amazon platform, it looks nice. So, I mean, there's a whole process to doing it. And I, I just, you know, I just, I read a lot. There's definitely literary agents and, and large publishing houses. But when I started writing my first book, I said, you know what? I'm not a patient guy. Like I'm not going to take the time to write, you know, Print all these manuscripts or email these manuscripts to all these large publishing houses. You know, it's going to sit on someone's desk. And if it's not flavor of the month, they're going to pass. Also, what Amazon has done is these publishing houses now, they're not writing big advances for books anymore. I mean, you're lucky as as a first time author, you get a couple of thousand bucks up front, and now you got a partner. With Amazon, I mean, right, wrong, or indifferent, it is the biggest and baddest cat out there as far as getting your book out there. So with Amazon, You can get four streams of income as a self-publisher going directly to Amazon. You can have it uploaded as paperback, an ebook, Kindle Unlimited, and then you can enroll your book in what's called Amazon Distribution, which major brick and mortar stores go through Amazon a lot of times like Costco and Walmart and Barnes and Noble. They'll order books through Amazon. You won't get as large a percentage, but you'll get something. My first book wasn't about the NYPD. It's called Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. It's about the ridiculous things people do to shorten their life expectancy. My first NYPD book is called NYPD Through the Looking Glass, stories from inside America's largest police department. My second NYPD book was called The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. That's got a good story in there about a guy I knew who stole a horse and carriage for a ride through Central Park. My next book was Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. That's everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry, who steals your car a car thief's mindset, what happens to your car after it gets stolen, where they change the VIN numbers on it or chop it for the parts and organized crime stories. The next book is NYPD Law and Disorder. It's about ridiculous things that cops do to get themselves in trouble. And then my last book, I took a break from writing about the NYPD. It's called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. And it's got a picture of a kid in a Catholic high school uniform running out of a confession booth with a priest on his tail, which happened to me. And that's growing up in the Bronx and being a smart-ass kid and going to Catholic high school and finally straightened my life out and becoming a cop. We were Catholic, but we weren't holy rollers. I mean, I made my sacraments, but we didn't go to church. And in the book, it starts off where we're sitting around eating dinner. and My father goes, hey, you're going to Catholic high school next year. And I'm like, what are you kidding? We don't even go to mass. And my dad was like, you're a clown, and if I send you to public school, you're going to be a bigger clown, so pick a school run by the men in black. So I'm a confused Catholic. I do believe in God. Sometimes God has answered my prayers. Sometimes it goes to voicemail. My dad, I I think I'm going to go the route of my father. My father was not very religious, and then later in life, he started going to church. That's probably going to happen to me. History has a way of repeating itself, but that's about it with my relationship right now with the Catholic
0: church. Vic describes how he realized that self-promotion of his work was an absolute necessity. Overall advice for new writers. And what's next for him?
1: It's a necessary evil, and I agree with you. Like, I really wasn't a social media person at all until I got writing the book. I wrote my first book, and it was selling marginally. And it's like, it dawned on me. I was like, I got to be willing to put myself out there. So... I started doing these podcasts and radio interviews and created a Facebook account for my books and an Instagram account and a Twitter account. And probably next, I'm going to hire a plane to pull a banner. I mean, you got to if with a podcast, any product, you could have the greatest thing in the world. If nobody knows about it, it's not going to sell. So you can be an obscure author or you got to be willing to put yourself out there. Same as a podcaster, You know, you got to create a social media platform pages and you got to promote them and hashtag them and put your product in front of people so they'll be willing to take a chance on you. You got to build a better mousetrap. You got to figure out a way to get through that. Do it yourself. I mean, there's so many companies out there that offer you a soup to nuts package. Oh, give us 5,000, give us 10,000. We're gonna give you a ghostwriter. We're gonna do all, we're gonna market your book. And then you got a partner and they're gonna. you're not gonna be happy with the product. Do it yourself. If you're a first time author, don't write in chronological order, tie it together at the end like a good Seinfeld episode. I use this company, it's called Ebook Launch. It's like an a la carte service. They don't try to sell you anything. The price is what it is and you don't have a partner. So I go to them, they create a book cover for me. Then I go back to them and they'll put me in touch with a copy editor then they'll put me in touch with a proofreader and they guarantee those people are gonna do a good job or you'll start over with somebody else. They also will format your book for you at a reasonable price, but it's an a la carte thing. It's not like you sign a contract and you're paying these people money and it never ends. Yeah, I don't want Vito the pimp, you know, looking over my shoulder. I'm writing another NYPD themed book. I don't have a title for it. That's usually the last thing I figure out. For me, any day above ground is a good day. I'm happy to be alive. I've been through so many things in my career and life. I'm just I'm just happy, you know, that, you know, people like yourself are nice enough to put me on your forums that I can promote my books and people are nice enough to take the time and read my books and buy them. I, I'm just, you know, I've got a great life. I, I wouldn't change anything about it. All my books, if you just go to the Amazon book section and type in my name, Vic, V-I-C, Ferrari, like the car, all my books will come up. They're all in paperback for $10. I try to keep the price point low. $2.99 ebook download, and they're available also on Kindle Unlimited if you have that subscriber service. And if you're looking to get a hold of me for whatever reason, you can do so through Twitter or Instagram at VicFerrari50.
0: Thanks for listening to Creators by Moonlight. Email the show at creatorsbymoonlight at gmail.com and follow the show on social at Creators by Moonlight.